Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As inflation hits a five-year high, should we expect the first interest rate rise in more than a decade? The best ways to Brexit-proof your investment portfolio... And the Germans. They save a lot, but according to Jonathan Ely, they don't necessarily save it well. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT Money Editor, bringing you this week's money news. The cost of living in the UK is on the rise. On Tuesday, consumer price inflation figures for the month of September hit 3%. That's the highest level in five years, putting pressure on the Bank of England to raise interest rates when they meet next month. But will they or won't they? Joining me to discuss is Gavin Jackson, the FT's economics reporter. Welcome, Gavin. Thank you, Claire. So inflation at 3%, does that mean a rate rise in November is looking near certain? Well, I think it is. They've uh, pretty heavily committed to it now. And if, if they don't, I think the markets will be pretty disappointed and take a pretty dim view of Matt Carney, who was famously called the unreliable boyfriend. Oh, yes, that quote. <laughs> yeah, for sending mixed signals in the past. So I think this time they really have committed to it. And the 3% rise does give them the cover to do that now to reverse some of the the 0.25% cut they did last August. They can now take that back, I think, because of the record high. Uh, sorry, the five-year high in, in inflation. So inflation at 3%, we know it's inevitable that rates will have to rise at, at some point, but economists are now not looking at so much when the first rise will be, but what the second, the third and the fourth might be. And they've got very different opinions about how far and how fast it might go as the cycle turns. Yes, yeah, so I think everyone is pretty convinced that they will take back the 0.25% cut from four. But no one's yet sure about how far they'll go. Now, most of the economists I've spoken to think that inflation will peak either September or in October. No one's really now. So it uh, won't, we won't see it get much much higher than 3%, exactly. which is the level it's running at at the moment. So the fall in the pound last year after the EU referendum will be pretty much passed through to customers. And it doesn't look like there's much sign of any domestic inflation pressure from wages or other costs feeding through the economy yet. Now, that might change. The Bank of England estimates the long-run equilibrium for the unemployment rate is 4.5%. Currently, we have 4.3% unemployment. So if workers start to get more confident in demanding wage rises, then that could lead them to start increasing interest rates in the future. But we've not had any wage growth for near a decade now, and I think people are starting to lose confidence they will ever come through. So it really depends on what's going on with that, with that domestic inflation pressure. It's whether this will just be one and done or will gradually go up next year. So some people, including uh, Berenberg's Callum Pickering, thinks that the market's currently underpricing an interest rate rise next year. If you look at where interest rates are in the market, they're thinking one in November and then one more in 2018. He thinks that after the first hike, the Bank of England will step up their warnings that more will come in the future. 
because they won't be happy with what the market thinks at the moment. But certainly for the next year, at least, listeners to the podcast in Britain should expect a small rise of 0.25% in the very near term and maybe another rise of the same amount in the year ahead. Yeah, that, I think it will certainly be gradual when the next comes, unless the data really changes and says that inflation is stepping up. So in the meantime, let's look at the effect that rising inflation is going to have on UK consumers as goods and services become more expensive, but real wages effectively are going backwards. Yeah, so data out last week found that uh, real wages have gone down by about 0.4% in the last year, squeezing consumer spending. Now, particularly food prices have gone up for food, and they've gone up for transport, and they've gone up for what the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, called recreation and culture. Now, of those, I think food is really the most notable. We've seen a 15% rise in butter prices over the last year, mm. thanks to a, a European butter shortage. We've seen a 7.5% increase in the price of beer, which isn't great. And bad, even worse news for, for young men like me, video game prices have shot up recently, which is part of the reason why uh, we hit a half-decade high in, infl- in inflation. So the increase in interest rates won't do that much for that. That price rise will still have come through. It will hopefully dampen down a little bit of the price pressure in future. And what's more, anyone with a mortgage will probably have to start paying more on that. On the plus side, savings rates will increase, and savers haven't seen much in the way of interest in the last decade. But still, it's only going up to 0.5%. So it won't provide that much relief. OK, well, thanks very much there to Gavin Jackson, the FT's economics correspondent. You can read our lead feature this weekend, Are You Ready for a Rate Rise? in the money section of the FT Weekend newspaper, or online from Friday at ft.com slash money. We're hosting an Ask Me Anything event on the evening of Wednesday, October 25th with our US investment columnist Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments. If you want to come, go to ft.com slash Ken Fisher event to book tickets. There's still a few available, which cost £35, including a glass of wine or two if you're quick and view full terms and conditions. How to Brexit-proof your investment portfolio is an enduring question, and it's one that Micah Curry, Investment Director at Fidelity, has tackled in her FT Money column this week. and She joins me now in the studio to discuss. Welcome, Micah. Thanks, Claire. So you make the point that there are two things which are really weighing on investors' minds right now, Brexit and the bear. Let's touch on the latter. If investors are worried about a bear market looming around the corner, what can we do? Yes, well, it's fair to be worried about the end of the bull market. We've had a bull market for eight years running now, and investors are increasingly nervous about an impending correction. The short answer is there's very little that you can do, because the fact of the matter is the initial stages or the final stages of the bull market are often the most profitable for investors. So you don't want to take all your money off the table too soon. You could move some money into cash, but as I say, then you risk losing out. I think the most sensible option is to make a small allocation to cash in the name of capital preservation and also that old wisdom of keeping some powder dry to take advantage of any dips in the market. Sure. So Let's move on to Brexit and how investors can Brexit-proof their portfolio. Now, you've spoken to lots of fund managers in the course of writing this piece to find out what received wisdom is of lots of people in the market. So talk us through some of their strategies. Yes, so I'm quite fortunate in, in my day job I get to meet fund managers from various different um, fund houses. And I think what's really interesting is that despite all of this uncertainty, they are finding some very attractive opportunities. Now, the well-worn playbook has been in the wake of Brexit to focus on those international earners that 
benefit from the weakness in sterling. And we know that there are quite a few of those. They're mostly within the FTSE 100. But it's interesting to note that lower down the market cap size, there are lots of opportunities. And I think a fund manager who's really capitalized on those opportunities is Dan Nichols of the Old Mutual UK Smaller Companies Fund. I actually looked at some performance figures. And over the 10 years since the financial crisis, his fund is one of the top performers in the UK space. And he's looking at basically companies that can benefit from structural opportunities and also industry consolidators. So companies that are scooping up smaller rivals. He's got holdings like Fevertree, which has been a fantastic investment, uh, Buffer, Conviviality, quite a few names in there. What are other fund managers doing? I mean, diversifying internationally is another. They are diversifying internationally and they're diversifying low down the cap scale. Another manager that I speak to is Alistair Gunn of the Jupiter Distribution Funds and he holds the Domino's franchise, DP Eurasia, for Russia and Turkey. Now that might sound a little bit punchy. Of course, we know that Russia and Turkey comes with a lot of political risk. Another name that he holds is Global Ports Holding, which benefits from being one of the few companies that's listed it's listed on the London Stock Exchange that taps into the rising popularity of taking cruise holidays and then of course the UK house builders is another interesting area well I mean I have to say I was in um, Madeira last week and it was just absolutely rammed full of cruise ships and I felt like the youngest person um, on the island. It was yes, a... the baby boomers are going on holiday <laughs> they and really, they're travelling. They really are. Um, I'll certainly have a look at that. But yeah, the house builders. and The house builders is quite an unusual choice. Um, I mean, they seem to have had quite a strong run since the Brexit vote. They have had a strong run, and I think the investment case for the house builders is a well-recited one. The chronic undersupply, the the lack of a quick response from the government, the fact that Theresa May has thrown another $10 billion at the help-to-buy funding scheme, that's boosted the house builders quite significantly. But they are very exposed to falling house prices, uh, to falling tra- transaction volumes. If we do see a shortage of labor post-Brexit, that could leave them mm. quite exposed. So an interesting alternative is an investment called PRS Real Estate Investment Trust, a manager called Alexander Jackson, who runs the Rathbone Recovery Fund, soon to be renamed the Rathbone UK Opportunities Fund, has highlighted this investment to me because this company really taps into generation rent, struggling to find places to rent because of this chronic shortage of housing in the UK. They build homes near good schools to be rented by the private sector and income-hungry investors will be especially enticed by the very attractive yields they target of between 5 and 6%. So very that's another interesting. interesting one. What they call multi-family housing in the US, rental housing that is aimed at families rather than single people. Well, thank you very much there to Micah Curry. Let me stress that this has been a general discussion about investment. We're not recommending or endorsing any of the securities mentioned there. You can read Micah's column How to Brexit-Proof Your Portfolio now on our website ft.com money or in Saturday's FT Money section. Now, finally, the Germans have a legendary savings habit compared to the British, but what are they actually saving their money into? This was the question posed by Jonathan Ely, former money editor, now deputy editor of the FT's Lex column, after a recent stint reporting from Germany. And he joins me now to discuss. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello. Guten Tag. <laughs> Guten Tag. Well, when it comes to saving, how do the Germans and the Brits compare? We are poles apart. So Brits save uh, very low proportions of their household income, about 3%. In recent times, it has actually gone negative, i.e. we're running down savings rather than accumulating them. 
The Germans, by contrast, save round about 10% of their household income, and in Europe only the virtuous Swedes and the smug Swiss manage better than that. But the, <laughs> the, the interesting thing, though, is that that doesn't translate into net wealth. The European Central Bank compiles these statistics about net household wealth, and the average German household is actually slightly less wealthy than the average Greek household, which is a figure I think would probably surprise a lot of people. It's partly down to the low levels of home ownership in Germany, uh, but even when you include only those Germans who own their own homes, Germans are still only, on average, slightly better off than Italians. Very interesting and surprising, but the savings products that the Germans are favouring, are they therefore you know, quite rubbish? No. Yes, sorry, they are. This is the, the nub of the, the, the problem, really. The Germans are very good at saving as in putting money aside, but they're very, very bad at investing it. They're very, very risk-averse. Um, so they tend to favour um, products that, that basically trade off risk against return. So at the moment, they're very heavily into cash, which, uh, as anyone will know, has been an appalling asset uh, over the last mm. 10 years, even more so in Germany because uh, the sort of European central bank has negative deposit rates and also they've historically gone into things like life insurance policies which again it's a bit like a with profits kind of arrangement you pay in over 10 or 20 years you get a guaranteed return at the end the guaranteed return is provided typically by a zero coupon bond a bit like a structured product in the UK and again the rates on those have, have been absolutely terrible because of QE um, so, so the returns on those have been very, very low. It's been a, a low-yielding decade for German savers. And how do the Brits fare better? Well, of course, Brits are much more likely to be in the two asset classes that have done absolutely brilliantly out of quantitative easing, namely shares and property. Uh, the Germans, for various historical reasons, are very averse to both of those asset classes. They regard housing as a consumer good, a house is a place to live and it doesn't really much matter whether you own it yourself or whether somebody else owns it. And Germans have also always been slightly suspicious of equities. Um, German companies have tended historically to be bank financed and had very close relationships with banks. Um, equities are perceived as being a bit of a casino. And it doesn't help that while British privatisations got going in the mid-1980s, the very start of a long bull market in shares, German privatisations didn't really kick off until the late 1990s, with the result that many ordinary German investors bought shares right at the peak of the dot-com boom. Uh, there was a massive offering in July 2000 of shares in Deutsche Telekom, which was the you know it was the it was the BT moment. In, I was going to say, what's the, what's the German equivalent of Tel Sid? Uh, Tel Wolfgang. <laughs> Tel Wolfgang. Yes, and, and and loads of retail investors bought 13 billion euros worth of shares at 66 euros each and those shares are now worth 15 euros not surprisingly german retail investors have a dim view of the stock market which is a great shame because their their index has tripled since the financial crisis it's done far better than the FTSE 100. And finally when it comes to property um you were in um, germany for several weeks over the summer reporting for the ft and you said that you were meeting younger people out over there who actually are saying now that they want to own a property. They're maybe catching the bug from, from Britain. They definitely are. I think there's two things involved in that. First of all, they see that property prices are rising. For years and years, property prices in Germany went nowhere. In fact, they probably fell 
in real terms. But now they're going up and rents are going up as well, even though rents are very strictly controlled mm. in Germany. In the big cities like Munich, Frankfurt, like Berlin, where younger people are much more likely to live, rents are rising very rapidly. So they're seeing, on the one hand, my living costs are going up, and on the second hand, on the other hand, my money is earning next to nothing in the bank. And they're putting two and two together and saying, do you know what, I'm going to buy a house. And it's interesting that in Germany, younger people are more likely to be enthusiastic about owning a house than older people. In Britain, of course, it's the other way around. Older people are far more likely to be homeowners than younger people. Fascinating. Well, I'm really looking forward to giving your column a good read this weekend. Thanks very much there to Jonathan Ely. You can read why the Germans are good at saving, but they don't save it well from Friday on ft.com slash money and in this weekend's FT Weekend newspaper. That's it from the FT Money Show. To get in touch with our team of financial experts, email us money at ft.com, tweet us at FT Money or comment on articles online at ft.com slash money. We'll be back next week at the usual time. Goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.